You are listening to the Insight to Action podcast. My name is Donna Jones. I am your host. My work involves bringing transformational insights to decision makers, to leaders who are leading change with the eye to bringing more of the system into the picture, create less, fewer, fewer unintended consequences and, and um, much better ethical decisions for, for both planet and people. I'm really interested in today's conversation because it, it's a big one. It's about wicked problems and the evolution of decision-making. Global Challenge Foundation founder and chairman, Laszlo Zambatvalfi, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, so please forgive me, Swedish billionaire who sponsored a contest to invent a better governance model to handle the wickedly complex issues like global climate change, human health and well-being, you know, traffic, child sex trafficking, all those, those horrible issues that reveal the dark side of humanity. No, Laszlo is not my guest today. I wish he was, but that, that may happen down the road. But the contest itself sparked quite a bit of collaboration between myself and several colleagues. My co-author, Thomas Yuli in Germany, Michael Manelli in London, Carl Mattingly in Australia, who you'll hear on the Insight to Action podcast, and Richard Barrett in Italy, UK slash US, who you'll also hear, all, all three of them have been involved in, in the podcast programs. I spent last summer researching and writing a submission that tackled complex problems from a systemic angle, working with nonlinear approaches to decision-making, as you, you'd expect to do when you're working with nonlinear issues, the ones that you're going to see in business which where communities of people are interacting. So nonlinear approaches fit nonlinear conditions. Now, what's the difference, you might ask? So I'll have a shot at answering that. Well, the, an issue that responds well to linear thinking is like fixing an issue on a production line. It may be complicated, but the relationships are low in number and the outcomes are easier to predict. So when your brakes wear out in your car, you fix them and you move on. When your car breaks down, problem solving using analytical thinking will reveal the source of the problem, although now, of course, we've got computers doing a lot of that work for you. Nonlinear issues, in contrast, they're unpredictable. There's lots of moving parts. The information is coming in at a rapid rate. And, and so there's no degree of certainty at all involved. They're high impact, they're highly interrelated, and very, very different set of skills that goes with it. Sensing is the skill used to navigate these complex issues, and distributing, distributed decision-making, uh, particularly fired and fueled by narrative, a good, a good uh, understanding of the story of what you're trying to create, uh, is, is the, essentially the fuel that fires the human spirit to get on with those issues that impact pretty much the future of everything. The Global Challenges Foundation objective is to contribute to minimizing and preferably eliminating, and this is right off their website, the major global threats to humanity. And to achieve this, they, they work in two ways, but one by increasing decision maker and public knowledge and insight about these challenges, and by stimulating discussion and innovative thinking about decision systems that would be able to manage the major global risks much more effectively and equitably. The contest closed at the end of September last year, and it received 2,702 entries from 122 countries. It's currently in the assessment stage. So far, we haven't heard if our submission is one of them, but yesterday I was sitting with one of the semifinalists who had just heard their submission was going forward to the panel in Paris next week. So you can hear my, you know, fingers crossed in the background there. <laughs> You'll hear from Sushant, the, the CEO, 
of Sway in a future episode. Sway is a distributed AI-powered decision-making platform. It's asking a lot of the same questions I asked myself last summer and, and explored with the help of Michael and Carl and Richard. And, and so you'll see this is clearly not going away. This is a topic that we are, are dedicated to, to wrestling down. Why? Well, quite simply because the complexity of these issues is just no match for binary methods like voting or for decision makers who really make decisions without information or who rely on their beliefs more than, than understanding the situation, more than caring about the impact of the decision and, and or the, the consequences on a nation's economy, the environment or citizen health. So, so we actually now have to make decisions that are much more conscious, much more aware of what these impacts are. It doesn't mean we're going to get it perfect every step of the way, hardly. It, it does mean, though, we're at least taking it into account, which if you notice how government you know, decisions are being made recently with the combination of Brexit and other political situations throughout the world, particularly right now in the United States, it's topical, quite topical. So governments aren't really equipped to handle issues that have all these fast-moving parts, and they can't be counted upon to be ethical. Uh, policy and or timely for that matter, policy has always been excruciatingly behind current reality. When I was working in Ottawa, it was a good 10 years behind. Now it's probably even slower because the rate of, of innovation is exponential, so there's an even greater lag. That means that you can't turn to governments for solutions, so that, turn, that asks us to take a, a stronger leadership role, us being those of us in business who see other alternatives, you in your in your life and and making your own personal decisions about your career it, it has it, it impacts everyone so business then is facing the need for more ethical and certainly more conscious decision making particularly given the mess Wells Fargo and and other companies like Wells Fargo where they're focused on shareholder value at the expense of all else the focus on one single beneficiary and at the sacrifice, you know, risking everything for it. So it requires more advanced skills. These executives are being challenged really to ramp up their competencies and the move from what's in it for me to how can we help the world be a better place? And by we, not not me, but we. So the we part is, is stronger than ever. And, and that, of course, requires a different way of, of getting decisions made and even forecasting where things are going to be in terms of crowd forecasting, for example. So more than ever, empathy and caring are part of the equation, and a new brand of bold leaders is required. And these aren't the leaders that, that I'm reading about on LinkedIn, where they say, oh, well, that's a hard sell because they believe they know everything there is to know, and I've come across that attitude plenty of times. No, this is a, requires much more humility. So it's not the, the leaders rely on position or being right but the ones who care, have, have a vision, bring conviction to designing a better world, who can share power, and who love learning, because that's what we're doing right now. We're experimenting and learning. Today I want to revisit a conversation I had with Michael Minnelli about humanity's capacity to tackle the wicked issues. Uh, Michael is part of the financial innovator company YZN. And they've been innovation, innovating in these issues for a long time. They've been working with Mutual Distributed Ledgers, which is the platform that is often confused with blockchain. Blockchain uses Mutual Distributed Ledgers to get things done. They've been pioneers in that area for 15 or so years. So when, when I was in London, we talked about 
how could smart contracts, policy performance bonds, and smart decisions using distributed ledgers, how could they offer a scalable solution for to make these decisions in a, with more voices and, and more, you know, with the crowd, essentially, the wisdom of the crowd, from local to global, toward actually way better governance and to meet citizens' needs. And so whether you understand any of what I just said or not is completely irrelevant, but, but what I, what's important to, to register and to, to note is that many people are looking for solutions. You're hearing all the noise about what's wrong with this picture, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of people are working, looking for solutions. We're experimenting with different approaches to bring care, empathy, and, and a, a completely different way of making decisions to apply to how we can collectively take action. So there's a broader distribution of responsibility and, and a higher commitment to working together. In 2014, Michael Manelli and his co-authors released the book Wicked Problems and the Price of Fish. And so in the interview I did in association with the release of that book was have the conversation on the big global challenges. And specifically, I asked him, is there hope? This was his answer. I think that we are definitely going to blow some of these big ones. Um, and as you back out, you know, broadly, uh, the big ones are overpopulation, which we've failed to address um, uh, certainly since I was born, which probably says something, but, you know, I was born into a world of about 2 billion people, uh, and current estimates are, we're gonna, if with luck, top out at 10 or 12. Uh, and the second one, and related to it, is, of course, uh, resource scarcity and our inability to manage our resources uh, well, either the resources we're consuming or the resources we'd like to admire, uh, like natural resources and wildlife. So those those are very pessimistic views. Do I think we can solve them? I, I think the answer is yes, and that was our attempt in the book was to kind of get people to break out. Um, you know, far too often, whatever domain you're in, cybersecurity, as I was this morning, or uh, where I'll be tomorrow, we're going to be looking at natural resource accounting. People come at something and they say, well, these, this is the law, and that's what the lawyers would say. And the accountants say, this is the number, these are the numbers, uh, not the ranges. Um, the scientists come in and sort of say, well, it's all fine and good, but all this needs to be done, and just a lot of money needs to be spent on it, but it's not our problem to figure out where that money comes from. And we're trying to find, as so many people are, and I, I know you are as well, you know, holistic is a, an overused word, but holistic, uh, slightly moral, embracing wider perspective approaches that allow people to work better together. What? Michael describes here is at the intersection of personal consciousness with wider collective uh, intelligence or wisdom of the crowds as it's often described. I remember reading a long time ago a brief tour of higher consciousness and sure enough dug it out. The, the author is Ishtak Bentov who was an inventor but he was trained as a mechanical engineer and as a practitioner, as a, as a nuts, as he self-described nuts and bolts guy, he, he dealt with mechanisms and structures, and in these two books, Stalking the Wild Pendulum and A Tour of Higher Consciousness, he looked at the structure and mechanics of the evolution of human consciousness, in fact, the evolutionary pattern of humankind, and he basically saw the human nervous system as the key to the process of evolution, involving creative energy, I might add, which I find interesting because whenever we hear conversations about networks, neural network is the first image that comes to mind, just the, the way in which things pass through fast, emotional and social 
networks pass information through very, very quickly. The fuel that sends the data across is powered by emotion, care, and uh, excitement. So I think that when we talk about holistic, one of the things to be mindful of is, is the, the mindset that goes with that. Ishtaf was a pioneer in the biomedical engineering industry. And then very always retained his childlike vitality of vision and, and saw the world as, an, as a single untangled web in which all parts are connected in a grand pattern. He grounded his work in the knowledge of the self as the root to all knowledge. The unfolding of consciousness there and spiritual evolution opens up in this latent knowledge. So he, he, sees, he always saw this as the threshold of consciousness. Now, sadly, he was killed in a plane crash in, or in the 70s, I should say. He was, he was on his way to a consciousness conference when this happened, and it was a massive loss. But he articulated then what is relevant now, because this is our calling. It is to expand our notion of what we are individually and collectively capable of and how important one person's contribution is to making a difference. Next, we're going to explore the big assumption, the master grand, or one of them at least, uh, assumptions that sit underneath the majority of corporate decisions today. And th these are the ones that require the, the most massive shift. Now, the good news is there are a number of companies that are catching on to this and they're making the jump, but it's it's my guest next from this uh, previous program who sheds light on what that looks like. So with me today is Dr. Nadja Zimbinvawi. You make the point that business has traditionally treated nature's, uh, what I call nature's life support systems, the air, you know, I mean, all of the technologies really that nature has as resources to be used and discarded. What's the imperative for business to make a, take on a radically different approach? Uh, well, indeed, for most of the history of modern economy, we've been looking at uh, resources as a kind of infinite pit that we can keep mining indefinitely. And uh, the reason why we are living in this illusion is not entirely the fault of the business people themselves. It's the case of the recent history, about 100 years of recent history, of the prices on raw materials. The 20th century, we faced a kind of uh, macroeconomic miracle where the demand for resources kept growing up and up and up. Actually, it went up as high as 2,000%, while the global economic output increased by about 20-fold and the population quadrupled. But in the same time, the actual prices on key resources as measured by many indexes, fell by almost half in real terms. So this is the uh, exact opposite of what macroeconomics teaches us, which is when you have a limited resource and you have more and more demand, the uh, price should go up. The reality is that in 20th century, because of the number of wars, uh, which released a lot of resources to the market for very cheap after different countries became independent and other forces, the prices actually fell. So our business assumptions and our business models are built on this illusion, which is the prices will continue to fall and resources are indefinite. Now, that reality is quickly turning around and we're finally catching up. The illusion is long gone. And already in the first decade of the 21st century, the real commodity prices went up by 147% and are projected to rise really sharply. 
And what's important here is I'm not only talking about the resources that are on everybody's mind, such as oil, for example, and gas, but we're talking about every single resource across the board. Just to give you very few examples, food, for example. I doubt any of the listeners are not uh, eating, so this would be one that comes close to home. Now, if you look at food, we do produce more uh, food by tons than we did 100 years ago. No question about that. But the chemical composition of that food is sharply um, changing. The nutritional value of our food is declining beyond any belief. So over the last 20 years, the studies show that our garden crops lost on average 6% of protein, 16% of calcium, riboflavin, a nutrient without which a baby brain cannot develop during pregnancy, we lost 38% of it from our food, 20% of vitamin C, and it keeps falling. So take any other resource you can imagine, helium, gold, the different species that we have and we depend on. Every single resource is falling and our managers are simply not prepared for that because they simply living in the illusion uh, that they lived for the last hundred years. So the grand assumption that's been influencing the use of resources, at least in companies, is that they are infinite. And that shows up in a statistic I use a lot in my talks, where there's something like $70 billion worth of rare earth minerals we've thrown away in landfills, and that those are the same rare earth minerals we want to build our, you know, could keep our phones going and build all sorts of technical devices. So we've been carelessly processing this stuff out, assuming that it's we, there's more, which there's not. The fact that I use is there's now more rare earth minerals in landfills than there are in all global known global reserves. Each each year, the Ella MacArthur Foundation runs the Disruptive Innovation Festival, otherwise known as thinkdiff.co. Part of that is the circular economy. The circular economy is defined as looking beyond the current take, make, and dispose extractive industrial model. The circular economy is restorative and regenerative by design. Relying on system-wide innovation, it aims to redefine products and services to design waste out while minimizing negative impacts. And this is about an under, you know, a, a transition to renewable energy sources. So it builds on economic, natural, and social capital. And you'll find more on that on the Ellen MacArthur Foundation website and or on thinkdef.co. The point here is that it, in, in shifting from the linear train of thought that we've, we've really invested a lot in terms of just being habitual about it and not really thinking about it, it's time to open the lens and, and look at things from as many different angles as possible and to recognize that companies have, in fact, been throwing a lot of money out of the door and into the into the waste bin. And the, the, the idea that, and this happened to me just recently when I was visiting my hometown of Edmonton, I went into a store and I, I asked them, you know, I bought something and they gave, you know, they wanted to give it to me in plastic. And I said, well, are you still carrying plastic? And their answer was, well, yeah, that's not my job. I, I'm not responsible. And if there's a line that sort of underpins the shift in decision-making from what we've always done to moving into the wicked problems and complexity, the idea that no one is responsible for what happens is deadly. In fact, responsibility for taking responsibility for change is a massive part of this shift. And the, along with that is also, what impact am I having by doing something, doing nothing? What impact am I having with this decision? How will this decision I'm making impact the ecology, the, the social health, 
uh, how will it impact the economy? And, and of course, the, the assumption is that there'll be no impact on the economy. But in reality, when you're throwing money out the door, I, I suggest that there's a reasonable impact involved with, with that. The next big belief that underpins the decisions that are going on in the majority of traditionally run companies today is that capital assets are, have a higher value than human assets. The idea being that when you're doing a program on, on in, in, in employee engagement or mitigate the effects of stress that the workplace has been creating and the precious workplace has been creating, the idea is that what we're doing and the outputs, whether it's the focus is on shareholder value or it, it's on, on uh, capital assets, has a higher value than, than people do. And that's uh, a, a recipe for unethical decisions. Wells Fargo did a really good job of it, pointing that out recently. Uh, but there's other decisions like that where the, the decision makers inside the organization are creating the conditions for higher risk and for failure. Uh, we also saw that recently in the the uh, research that came out of the decision that Volkswagen, sorry, the outcome of the Volkswagen situation with the engineers, when they were pressured into coming up with a solution under really, constraints are a good thing, but the, this was a very difficult situation. And so they did what they thought was the only solution in order to meet the demand, and that was to create an, an algorithm that cheated the system, i.e., emissions, the emission control systems were off when it was on the street and on when it was uh, the vehicles were being tested. And then, of course, what the, the company did after that just added higher risk to the situation and, and certainly did damage, you know, reputational damage with customers, many of whom I spoke with and who were really disillusioned by the lack of responsibility that uh, corporate Volkswagen took in their, in the follow-up decisions. Now, whether that's continued or not, I don't know. But certainly it, these experiences that we're reading about in the papers that we're seeing in the business press provide us real with a lot of insight into what, what are we habitually doing without even thinking about it unconsciously. And of course, this is where obviously my case for more conscious decision making comes to mind, because it is the place where you can see from a wider view as Ishtak, uh, Ishtak Mentoff uh, what was described as having and holding a capacity to be an engineer and, and, and an inventor, but also to be able to work with higher consciousness, with the structure and the mechanics of consciousness. So, so there was empathy balanced off in there. And, and I think there's a, a beautiful dynamic that happens when you can combine both parts of our intelligence. I just finished doing an interview that you're going to hear next week on AI and ethics. And of course, what we had to talk about was what are the intelligences that we need going forward? And we, we've really excelled at, at leaning heavily on the analytical side. But now, in order to balance off what, what computers can do quite, quite well, if not better in some respects, is to bring what makes us uniquely human to the situation. And, and those are sensory skills. Those are empathics, the intuitive, high, high levels of intuitive intelligence, high levels of sensory, sensory awareness, high levels of self-awareness as well. So, so this is exciting in, in the sense that we've got so many young people who are highly energy sensitive 
and who are getting beaten up by the need to rely heavily on cognitive functioning, on rules and so forth, and it, it no longer fits. So in terms of the pivot that we're making between the old way of making decisions, which is you know, purely analytical, more habitual, and where we're heading in the future in order to design a future that we want, it is to be aware that data isn't the answer for everything because we're always interpreting data. And as long as we're always interpreting data, we're always overlaying bias and, you know, all of, all of who we are as human beings and our state of awareness and, and what we can see in the world. So I think this is exciting. We're, we're actually working on a project to put together some of these stories of these energy sensitive individuals because they, they bring a capacity to perceive that is very much needed in business today and very much missing in a lot of decisions because they're too busy focused on, on, uh, on just simply making the decision. Or as one client said, we're just, you know, we've had too much process as if how we get things done was, was not part of process. So it's, it's a bigger picture and it's evolving quite quickly. So this is exciting, I think, overall. In terms of the things that you can do as a decision maker, there are some very genetic, generic uh, tips that I, I'd like to offer. One is to be very, very much aware of your focus. Now, I may have said this in the overview, and if I did, and I'm repeating myself, apologies, uh, but it bears rep repetition because when you become a master of this, then you've got it for the long haul. So being aware of what the focus is. What, what you're focusing on unconsciously. That means just stopping and reflecting a bit. That's a big one. The other thing is to merge perspectives, be able to see, people, see, see through different perspectives, to perceive from different set of eyes and viewpoints and to actively seek that out, invoke some curiosity. And third is to question impact, as I mentioned earlier. So what's the impact of this decision going to have on our organization? Fourth would be observe the dynamics. When you make a decision, observe what happens. Even when you're not making a decision beforehand, observe what, what, what's going on. But follow the emotional and social threads because those are the ones that are going to show you what's really going on. That is the, the uh, primary source of information for timing and for understanding what conditions are embedded in the decision-making environment. If you can work your way toward becoming what, what has been described as a holistic perceiver, where, whereby you can see at multiple levels across a wide, very broad range, you're going to be able to start seeing systems. And when you can begin to perceive systems, you're going to then be able to identify leverage points where a little bit of action goes a massive distance, uh, creating that quantum consciousness leadership level and, and the, you know, the ability to really shift big systems in with minimal effort. And that, and that it, of course, as far as transforming organizations is concerned, is, is a real asset and a, an incredible strategic advantage, obviously. So that's the program for, for today. I hope you've, it's a bit shorter than usual, but I hope you've enjoyed it and I hope you found some insight out of this. Uh, you can find more insight into networks and self-organizing in the Intelligence of the Cosmos, which has been released by Inner Traditions by Irvin Laszlo. I have a chapter in there, chapter seven, which covers um, also covers the impact of epigenetics on, on decision-making and workplace health. So I encourage you to do that. We've got another book coming out through Great Workplace Cultures, 
And in that, I have a chapter on how stress, how companies are creating stress-related costs in their workplace environment. So what, are, what is the cost of ignoring workplace culture? So that's coming out probably in the next six months, I would say. And also, of course, there's decision-making for dummies, which is a really a good wide, wide berth of entry point. And as several colleagues have said, um, there's much more to that book than meets the eye than title would suggest. So I encourage you to take a look at that as well. You can reach out to me on Twitter, E-P-D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones, or you can email me or contact me through my website from insighttoaction.com. You can also email me at Donna, D-A-W-N-A at frominsighttoaction.com. Talk to me about decision-making workshops, bringing, bringing together perspectives and, and being able to make more conscious awareness of what you're habitually doing and creating, how you're getting in your own way, basically. And also talk to me about transformational insights for decision-makers and leaders who are leading change and transformation inside their companies, inside communities, and at a global level. Thanks so much.